Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A, where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so that we can know what to believe, rightly dividing the Word of Truth, knowing that the Word of God is our highest authority, not what we've been taught before, might or might not be correct, not what tradition says, but what God's Word says. And if we have to change anything, then we want to change it. Our desire is to look at these questions and then see if God's Word has to say anything about it. Our first question comes from our study from this Wednesday night. I was off, but Jason McKibben taught, and he taught on the call, our call. He looked at Acts 17, and he looked at the different people who were there and how they responded to their calling and how their calling was different. The question that we have comes from that study. Tonight, this weekend, we're going to be talking about Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, the prediction that he makes, and look back at a prediction in the Old Testament that talks about when the the ministry of Jesus should be. If you have any questions about that, then you could submit them underneath that study, and we'll look at them. We're going to look at one of them at the beginning of our next Q&A. So here's our, our question for the day. Is there a general call for all Christians? Or do we each have a specific call? Now, this is because each one of these persons were doing something a little different in Acts chapter 17. So is there a specific call for each one of us? First of all, we know that there is a general call, right? We are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. We are ambassadors with Christ as if imploring people to come to him. There are certain things that all Christians are supposed to do. And we want to be sure that we are doing those things that God has called us to do. We want to be the light. We want to be the salt. We want to be witnesses for him. Doing all of those things effectively. But the question is, are there certain specific calls for each one of us? And I believe the answer is yes. In Romans 8.29, it says that whom God foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And just as he had a different purpose for each one of the 12 apostles, so there's a different purpose for each one of us. I've got a call on my life to be a pastor. I've got a call on my life to go to Tucson. I was called from Albuquerque to go out to Tucson. Not everybody has that call. But I had some confirmations in my life that are pretty important that I understood this is what God wanted me to do. God wanted me to know that he wanted me here. And I think that God wants you to know what the call on your life is. Now, it might not be tremendously grand. Your call may be to be a Sunday school teacher. Your call may be to share Christ in the place that you work. Your call might be to come alongside of someone on the mission field financially. That doesn't take away from your general call. You are still part of the light of the world. You are still a city that is set on a hill. And if you're going to do the things that God has called you to do, then you want to make sure that you understand what that general call is. And then afterwards, we can begin to understand what our more specific call is. We want to make sure we've got that general call. We're the, the, doing great commission work, right? Go out into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit to do all of the things that I have commanded you. All right? So, um, yeah, there is a general call for all of us, but there is also specific calls as well for each one of us. And we want to make sure we're walking in that. That's part of the talents that God has given us. I want to be faithful to what God has called me to do and not bury my talent or hide it away. All right. So good to see you guys. Good to have you here. I appreciate you all. If you have a question, then write the word question before your question. Reread your question a couple of times. Make sure that it makes sense before you submit it. And also, if you have a reference, instead of just giving me um, Daniel chapter 9, Give me Daniel 9, 24 through 27 so I can take time to look it up because sometimes I can remember where the reference is at, but sometimes I can't. I also want to say, I'm not saying that I have all the questions to all the answers. And if you've watched our Q&As, any, I'm fond of saying, I don't know. 
I'm not afraid to say I don't know. The last thing that I want to do is pretend I know when I don't really know. But if you have a question, at least I can point you in the right direction. We could kind of take a look at what the Bible would have to say, see if we can kind of figure it out together, and then we can revisit it later on. I never mind coming back to a question that we answered a week or two ago, or maybe even longer than that, and coming back and revisiting that. So it's good to see you guys. And we have our first question again from Andre. Andre seems to get that first spot all the time. I challenge someone to beat Andre with the first question. All right. Um, and Andre's also always got really challenging questions, which, by the way, I really like. But it seems like I say, I don't know, to Andre's question a lot more than I do others. Um, so Andre says, Jesus taught us how to pray, Matthew 6, 15 through 13, which is the Lord's Prayer. Paul informed us the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us, Romans 8, 26 and 27. Is it fair to say as long as we are flesh, we will never get prayer right. Thank you, Andre. I appreciate your question. So the Lord's Prayer, you guys should know it well. Jesus said, when you pray, pray in this manner. He didn't say that we are to use it for a petition, like, man, I'm in a lot of trouble. I need to pull this, this particular prayer out and say it. But instead, it was the idea that it contains all of the things that we should be praying about regularly it doesn't mean that we won't be praying for some other things. As we go through the Lord's Prayer, uh, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So we have a dad who is in heaven and he's holy and we worship him. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I'm not praying to God to try to get my will be done, but I'm praying for his will. Uh, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. To pray for our own needs is important. uh, lead us not into temptation, which is something that I think we ought to be asking on a regular basis. Lead us not into temptation. We know that God doesn't tempt anyone, but God may be testing us and that might lead us into temptation. And so we pray that we wouldn't be led into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Now that's a great prayer. And it's a good prayer to give us a guideline of what we should pray. When we pray it, I don't think that we should just be praying that you go through it in our minds, but take time to slow down, using them as a stencil to pray over these areas. In other words, don't just say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, but say, forgive me my sins. Maybe get specific. And Lord, help me to forgive them their sins and what they've done in my life. Help me to forgive them as well. Um, Romans 8, 26 and 27 has to do with with what we don't know to pray for. In fact, I'd like to go there and pull this up on the screen for you and get a good idea here of what it is saying. So this is Romans 8, 26 and 27. Got that reference right, Andre? I'm going to trust you. Romans 8. 26 and 27. Yep. Let me go ahead and bring this up on the screen for you so you'll be able to take a look at it. So it says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know what we ought, what we should pray for as we ought, but the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. This is not tongues. This is you crying out to God, not knowing what to pray, maybe tearfully crying out to him and God knowing what you're praying and the Holy Spirit, because he knows what you're praying, making intercession for you as you call out to him. So your question in all of this, Andre, was is it fair to say that in our flesh that we are not going to get prayer right? Well, we never get prayer right as long as we're in the flesh. I think that probably could be a pretty fair statement all the way around for a lot of different things. I think it's easy for us to say that as long as we're in this flesh, we're not going to be doing everything right. I wish I prayed right all the time. I wish I prayed when I should. Sometimes it isn't until after I'm struggling with something that I don't realize I should have been praying about this. We just don't go as quickly to prayer as we should, put our trust in it as much as we should. And I think if we're all honest, we realize that. 
Now, there are some who may do better with prayer than others, and that's great. Um, But prayer is a gift for here and now. I don't know how much we'll use prayer in heaven. I don't know what our communication with God is going to be like when we are up in heaven. So prayer is something right now, a gift for us now, and we want to try to get it as right as we can. And um, that doesn't mean we're always going to be able to do that, but we certainly want to give that a try. Thank you, Andre, for that question. I think that Jim got close. Um, All right, so let's go to Jim. Jim, glad you could join us. This may be your first time here with us. Good to have you here. Uh, Jim says, I thought, question, I thought a sin is a sin in God's eyes, either a lie or a murder, will keep you out of heaven. Why then is there a difference of importance placed on sins of the flesh as opposed to other sins? All right, so Jim, the, the premise of your question, and I understand why you would say this. I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone say from the pulpit, um, uh, a sin is a sin, whether whatever sin it is, if you lie or if you murder. And sometimes they're trying to give compassion on someone who maybe is in a sexual sin and saying that a lie is as bad as a sexual sin. Now, it is true, your statement, that a lie breaks the law. Well, bearing false witness breaks the law. And a sexual sin breaks the law. And so in that sense, they're the same. But there's a world of difference between telling a lie and murder. And that's the only way that they're the same. There are consequences from murdering someone that you're not going to get from telling a lie. The Bible never says all sin is the same. And this is really important to understand. I want to be, I don't want to take advantage of people. I want to walk right in a right relationship with God and a right relationship with people around us. And when people say things like this, maybe we get the idea, well, I might as well go out and, you know, I might as well go out and and fornicate. I want to. And if it's as bad as telling a lie, well, I tell a lie anyway. Hey, we all have sin. If anybody says they don't sin, they're lying. John told us in John, 1 John chapter 1, I think it's verse 6. So you've got sin in your life. But we want to stay away from sin because it so easily entangles us. The consequences of that sin Think of the sin of David with Bathsheba and her husband Uriah and how that tainted the rest of his life. Had David not had the sin of having multiple wives, I don't know if he would have ever had that affair with with, uh, Bathsheba. I can't say that for sure, but I think that this particular sin brought up these, um, this particular sin brought so many hardships and difficulties into David's life that it's really important for us to understand it. And oftentimes we think that if I do this little sin, it's not as bad as doing that sin. I'm not saying that any sin is justified and we ought to walk in righteousness and holiness. However, to say that all sins are the same is just not right. I don't think they're the same in God's eyes. I don't think that God judges them the same. They, sin will keep you out of heaven. That is a true statement. But other than that, I don't think that sin is the same. And I could continue on talking about that um, if you wanted to. But let me make sure I got all your questions right. I thought a sin was a sin in God's eyes. And that's, I think, not a true statement. I think that if I, what God cares most about about for me is the way I treat people. If I, um, the Bible says, the mercy I give is the mercy I'm going to receive. The judgment that I judge with is the judgment that I'm going to receive. So, I don't think that's a true statement. In God's eyes, a sin is a sin. Now, either a liar or murder will keep you out of heaven. Let's talk about what will keep you out of heaven. Is it not lying? Is it not murdering, Jim? Everybody murders. Everybody, well, murders in their heart, right? If you're angry with your brother in your heart, then you've committed murder. Everybody sins. Everybody sins after they become a Christian. So we're all condemned. That's why Jesus said in John 3, um, 17, that we are condemned already. We all sin. We all are condemned. And we all need Christ. And so it's not sin 
that keeps us out of heaven. It's not receiving Christ. John 1.12 says, as many as receive him, he gives the power to become a child of God to those who believe in his name. And so you pivot from this world and from living for yourself to God to live for him. And that's what will keep you out of heaven. What will keep you out of heaven is not finding forgiveness for your sins. Now, once you come to Christ, then he starts that sanctification process. Once he starts that sanctification process, then sin is going to be worked out of your life because you're genuinely born again. Then there's a transformation that happens inside of us. And we, we now want to start walking with God. And we're going to be disciplined because God loves us. And because he loves us, he disciplines us. And there's no discipline of God that is pleasant, but it is grievous, right? And so um, either a lie or a murder will keep you out of heaven. Why then is there a difference or importance placed on sin in the flesh as opposed to other sins? And I don't know that there is, okay? Sorry to pick your question apart here, Jim, so thoroughly. Um, The sin of pride. I'm going to say it's not a sin of the flesh, although I I guess it's a work of the flesh. I would like to know what your definition between a sin of the flesh as opposed to other sins would be. What would not be a sin of the flesh? Um, Lust is a sin of the flesh. Pride is a sin of the flesh. Then you've got, are you talking about actual acts like adultery, like beating someone up, um, acts of violence, um, taking advantage of someone? So you're talking about physical acts as compared to things that are inside of us. All of them are sin. The original sin for Satan was was, um, pride. And every one of us has pride. And it's one of the seven things that God hates is a haughty look. One who sheds innocent blood. One who um, breaks the peace. I'm trying to think of all the seven things that were said there about that. So I think the premise of your statement Jim is just not quite biblical. I think we're saved by Christ and that we should have no justification for sins. When the Holy Spirit convicts us, we should want to get those things out of our lives the best way that we possibly can. All right. Sorry again, Jim, to pick your question apart so much, um, but I think it's really important for us to understand those things. And if you're watching this today, and you've never given your life to Christ, then give your life to him. Your sin will condemn you. But Jesus died to take your sin. The Bible says that he became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And we're saved by faith through grace, not by faith and not sinning, but by faith through undeserved favor. That's a pretty amazing statement, through undeserved favor. All right? So thank you very much, uh, Jim. Glad to have you here with us today. If you're joining us for the very first time, by the way, really glad to have you here. Uh, If you guys have a question, write the word question out or put a question mark in front of it. Then read your question a couple of times. Put the Bible references there so that we can take a look at them if we would like to take, if uh, we can take a look at it. All right. So we have a question from Jari. Jari, good to see you. Jari says, is it true if we don't suffer with Christ, we won't reign with him? I heard this at a men's group. Will some not be reigning during the millennial kingdom, not using gifts, having it easier? All right, so is it true if we don't suffer with Christ, we won't reign Christ? I heard this at a men's group. Um, all right, Jari, thank you for your question. Um, I don't think that that is biblical at all. I think, you know, Paul talked about fulfilling the suffering of Christ. Paul said, I want to know him in the, in the power of his, resur- his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. And then he also said that we could complete the work of Christ inside of our lives. And so I think it's important for us to understand that it, the suffering doesn't necessarily mean suffering for Christ. If you and I are persecuted and we are martyred, The Bible talks about special rewards that come along with that. And that's a good thing. And and you might not think that when you're being persecuted, right? You might think that it would be better to not be persecuted. 
But the Bible says rejoice when these things happen to you, uh, when you are persecuted in this way. But we want our suffering, whatever suffering is going to happen to me, I want God to be glorified in it. Romans 8, 28, God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. So I want God using my suffering for him. So the idea that if you don't suffer, then you're not going to reign with him. First of all, show me the person who doesn't suffer. Life is a tragedy and life is difficult. And so is he saying suffering for Christ, meaning you got to go out and do something to make people hate you or to make to suffer for him, or you're not going to be able to reign with him. I, I don't know of a reference. If you guys have a reference for that, I'd love to go over it because I have a feeling that whatever reference he used was a reference that he ended up misusing to be able to say the things that he wanted to say. All right. Uh, let me see if I got the rest of your question here. Um, I heard this at a men's group. Um, some will not reign during the millennial period using gifts or having it easy. Um, yeah, I, I think maybe there's uh, quite a broad misunderstanding about all of the things uh, that are happening because of the millennial period, right? I think that um, there, are, there are misunderstandings for, for these things. All right, so Jari, um, I hope that the men's group was a blessing to you. I hope that you were encouraged in several ways, but going out and getting yourself beat up for Jesus doesn't mean you're going to reign anymore, okay? Remember, Paul avoided being beaten when he was in Jerusalem. He said, I'm a Roman citizen. You're going to beat a Roman citizen? We don't want to get beat up just to be beat up, for beat up sake. If I'm chosen by him to suffer for him, then that's great. That's fine with me. But other than that, I don't want to suffer if he doesn't have that particular suffering for me. All right. Thank you, Jari, for your question. I appreciate that. Um, if you have uh, a particular reference by which he was using to try to indicate that, I'd love to look at it to see if it's something that they're kind of misusing or not. We have a question here from Albert. Albert says, in the Old Testament, David um, and the prophets prayed that their enemies would be punished. Yeah, in, um, in precatory prayers. So in precatory prayers, meaning God bust their teeth in their mouth. We see in Revelation also, we see this in Revelation also. Boy, I'd love to have that reference in Revelation. Maybe the souls under the, the souls that are under the altar who are awaiting the justice for what's been taken from them. It goes on to say, um, and seems to not be evident um, what can this teach us? Okay, yeah. Um, let me start off by what I think it's not teaching us. All right, so again, I'm pretty sure that I'm right that these are imprecatory prayers. Um, I, Gail Irwin used to make fun of that. He would kind of say um, that I, I'm going to pray for my enemy, that God would give him nausea and lockjaw at the same time. Or he had several of those that were really funny um, that you would pray against your enemies. But we're told to love our enemies, to pray for those who spitefully use you, to bless those who curse you. So it is radically different. So the question is, during the Old Testament times, and I know that David prayed several of these precatory prayers, imprecatory prayers. I'm gonna stop saying that because I'm not sure I'm saying it right. I'm close, but I'm not sure I'm saying it right. Um, was he right for praying them? in that Old Testament law. And I'm going to give a big maybe. I'm not really sure. I know that when we cover those prayers, you look at him pouring out his heart. Um, he was living in a time when they would literally ride out and attack their enemies. They was living in a time of, of battle and a time of war. Uh, the Bible did say in the Old Testament to love your neighbors, but Jesus added to that, to love your enemies. So, whether or not David was justified in what he prayed or not, I don't know. But I do know that you and I have been given a new command as to how we are supposed to live. And that is the covenant of love, that we are to love one another. The Bible says that they will know that we are his disciples by the love that we have for one another, the love of enemies, 
blessing those who curse you. The next time someone curses you, this happens to us most often, unfortunately, when we're driving, someone gets upset at us and, and you should say, the Lord bless you. Maybe even the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord give you peace. Pray for them because this is what you and I have been called to do, that we are to pray for them. Whether or not it was right or wrong in the Old Testament, I think that we could probably make this statement the case that perhaps it was right for them to pray some kind of curse upon their enemy. But for us, we're not told to pray that way at all. And it's far away from what we're supposed to do. All right. So thank you, Albert. Very thoughtful question, by the way, as uh, your questions always are. I appreciate you and I appreciate you being here with us. If you're joining us for the very first time, really glad to have you here with us. Uh, We do this on Wednesdays and Saturdays and from four to five, where we take questions and we look at them through the lens of scripture. We start with a question from our last Bible study. Tonight, we have a service. We're in Luke chapter 19. We're gonna be talking about Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, predicting its destruction, and then a prophecy that may have brought it to that particular day. This is in Daniel chapter nine, um, the chapter of Daniel nine prophecy. So if you have any questions next Saturday for the study for tonight, so maybe if you watch the study, then go ahead and write down some questions, then bring in the questions for the next week. Also, if you're a new believer, really glad you're here and you're not quite sure what this is all about, there's no question that is too simple or silly, all right? And if you ask a question that, maybe has a, some weirdness to it. I'll be really careful not to make fun of you. When you're a new believer, you're learning things. I think it's really important for us to understand that call that God has given us. All right, so um, we have another question here. And this question comes uh, from, is it uh, Dana? Dana Oliver uh, says, um, when is a conversation or a public setting and you feel attacked spiritually, is it appropriate to say out loud, I rebuke you, Satan, in Jesus' name? I have done this, and it feels weird, and it makes others uncomfortable, but sometimes it seems to help. Okay, thanks. Thank you for for that question. Um, Let's just break it down here. When in a conversation, in your public setting, you're talking, and all of a sudden you feel attacked spiritually, and so out of the blue, you're like, I rebuke you, Satan. And other people are like, Wow, but sometimes you feel like it helps. Let's talk first of all about whether or not it's appropriate to say, I rebuke you, Satan, all right? Um, You remember that the Bible tells us that Michael and Satan were arguing over the body of Moses. Now, why they were arguing over his body, we don't know. Maybe Satan wanted to enshrine it. Maybe he's one of the two witnesses and God wanted to do something with the body of Moses that was different than what he would do with other bodies. Who knows? But Michael said, the Lord rebuke you. Michael wouldn't even say, I rebuke you. Michael, the archangel, he's the archangel. And he wouldn't say, the Lord, I rebuke you. He said, the Lord rebuke you. Uh, When I was, uh, first of all, a Christian, when I was a first, when I was a young Christian, I went to a church that taught that we could tell Satan what to do. I had somebody tell him in the parking lot, I tell Satan to climb to the crest and then I tell him to climb a light pole and come back down. So while he's doing those things, he can't be bothering other people. And even back then, here I am probably 18 years old thinking you are not telling Satan what to do and he is not listening to you. He's not climbing up a light pole because you tell them that they are supposed to go and climb up a light pole. Jesus said that we were to go to the stronger than the strong man. When there's a strong man, in order to bind him and get his goods, you have to get a stronger than the strong man. Greg Laurie says that when Satan knocks on my door, I send Jesus to answer the door. And I can tell you that when I feel under spiritual attack, that what I do instead, instead of saying, um, I rebuke you, Satan, would be the Lord rebuke you. Jesus, would you bind the enemy? Would you, would you rebuke the enemy if he's working in my life? Would you rebuke him? I'm not saying that you and I have not been given authority. The Bible says Jesus said in, in, I think it's Luke 17, behold, I give you power 
to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, but nothing will, and nothing will by any means hurt you. The gates of hell shall not prevail against us, Jesus said, when he gave us the keys to the kingdom and said, I will build my church upon this rock. So he established the church and we're given authority. John tells us in 1 John that if anyone is in Christ, he does not sin and the evil one cannot touch him. The Bible says, don't give place to the devil. All of these are genuine spiritual warfare, but never are we told to rebuke the devil. And that's because, hey, if I'm going to fight Satan, then I'm probably going to lose. I'm going to have a lot of trouble trying to win fighting the enemy. And so in a public setting, I, I would not do this, Dana. I wouldn't do it because, first of all, I could do it quietly if I really felt it needed to be done. I don't need to say it out loud. Secondly, people are going to think I'm weird, and I don't want them to think I'm weird. If they're going to think I'm weird, for Christ's sake, if I'm doing something Jesus told me to do, and they think I'm weird because of that, that's one thing. But if you are saying something that the Bible doesn't say for you to say or not to say, and then you do it, then that becomes strange and that becomes weird. So if you're feeling like you're being attacked spiritually, then call out upon Jesus. Say, Lord, help me. Bind the enemy. Make sure you have your armor on. You have your helmet of salvation on? You have your breastplate of righteousness on? You got things right between you and God and people around you? Are you walking in the truth? Are you believing lies? You have the belt of truth on? Do you have your shield of faith? Are you trusting in God, believing in his word, believing what he said, believing that he rose from the dead? Have you have the sword of the spirit so that when the enemy attacks you, you can attack back with the word of God and then stand and pray? That's biblical. That's biblical spiritual warfare. All of this other stuff is out of context. It's not biblical. This is part of the winds of doctrines that come around and around and around again and again and again. And so call upon Jesus. Let him, let him be the strong man that answers the door. Um, I understand why it feels weird because you're talking to something that they don't see. And if you're in public and they don't even know it's there, they don't, even, they don't believe in Satan, they don't understand what's going on, they're going to think that you've absolutely gone out of your mind. And I'm going to take it for our witness and testimony to Christ that that is not a good thing. All right? So, Dana, thank you very much uh, for your question. I hope that helps. Spiritual warfare. Um, study what the Bible has to say about spiritual warfare. Do a spiritual warfare study. Or go and listen to someone you trust on what spiritual warfare really is all about. And I think that uh, you'll be able to um, you'll be able to really get some information. The best book I've ever read on spiritual warfare is a little book by Warren Wiersbe, I think by that title, Spiritual Warfare, and it by far is the best book that I've ever read on it. He does a great job in just going over scriptures and applying what the Bible says about spiritual warfare. A lot of really bad books out there on it, and um, so, yeah, I, I'm not in the business of rebuking Satan because if I take Satan on, I'm going to lose, but Jesus isn't, and so I call out upon his name, and my protection doesn't come from Robert Furrow. My protection comes in Christ, for Christ's sake, and for all that he's doing for us, all right? So thank you, Dana. I appreciate your question. Uh, it is uh, helpful, and I hope, that that, uh, I hope that that was helpful for you, all right? So we have another question here from Brianna. And Brianna says, um, what is the difference between Jesus allowing people to take over cities like in Luke 19, 11, versus becoming king of a city and failing? Luke 19, 11. So we're talking about the parable of the good steward. And this is a parable. So you've got a nobleman who goes to a far country. Jesus tells them this parable because they think the kingdom of God's going to come immediately. So they think they're going to go to Jerusalem. They think Jesus is going to deliver them from the Romans. The disciples on the Emmaus road said, we had hoped that he would deliver us from the yeoman rope, the Roman yoke. But Jesus, they had wrong expectations on Jesus. They thought that Jesus was going to deliver them from the Romans, which would have been great in their lives, one of their greatest needs. But the greatest need 
was that he would come and die for the sins of all mankind. So in this parable, Jesus says a nobleman. Now this nobleman just represents Jesus. The nobleman isn't Jesus. And this is important in parables. Parables simply represent, grab a drink of water here. The parables simply represent someone and not everything that they go through or is experienced speaks of them. And so Jesus says, tells a parable and he says that he brought his stewards all in and he gave them each a mina. A mina is about four months wages. There were 10 of them. Then he went on his trip and he came back. The first one had turned his mina into 10 minas. He invested it and he said, well done, good and faithful servant. You will be over 10 cities. The second one said, my mina made five. And he said, well done you'll be over five cities. And to the last one, he said, I was afraid of you, that you were an austere man. The word austere means severe. You were an austere man, maybe severe and not a good sense, by the way. And, and you reap where you don't sow. And so I hid in a handkerchief and here's your mina back. And it says for fear, he had done this. And so Jesus said, you knew I was an austere man. That the, the nobleman said, you knew I was an austere man. You should have at least invested it in the bank so I could have my interest. Take the mina away from him and give it to the one that has 10. And you might say, well, that seems unfair. He has 10. Yeah, but he's the most faithful. And part of that parable is faithfulness. I don't know that the rewards in heaven are going to be ruling over cities. It seems like the heavenly re rewards are increased responsibility. That's what it seems like. Instead of crowns or jewels, maybe those things are given to us that we could give back to Jesus or throw at his feet. So when I look at your question about Luke 19.11, what is the difference between Jesus allowing people to take over cities like in 19.11, so he never allowed anyone to take over a city because it's a parable, right? And parables aren't true versus David becoming king of a city and failing. So David became king of Israel, not just a city. His headquarters was Jerusalem, but he became the king over an entire city. And I think that's important for us to understand. And yeah, David did fail, but also understanding that David had great successes. And it's really easy for us to look at someone like David and think, I, I, I and, and think, I really, um, could have done better than what he did. And, and maybe you could have, or maybe you would have failed in a different way. See, the point as you make your way through the Old Testament is that there's this promise that a Messiah is on his way. Genesis 3.15, that your seed is going to crush the head of his seed. Jesus said to the, to, to the religious leaders, you are of your father, the devil. So they were the seed of Satan. And then Jesus was the seed of the woman that was promised. And as you make your way through the Old Testament, you find that here's all of these people that look like they could be the promise. You find Joseph, but he wasn't it. You find Moses, but he failed. You find Samuel, but he wasn't it. You find David, but he failed. And so you make your way through all of these Old Testament people. And if you've ever wondered, like Abraham, why in all of these stories were told all of the bad things that happened to them? I've often said before, I'm really glad that I wasn't in scripture because all the things that I failed in would be there for everyone to see. And I think that we would all admit that we had failed, that we have failures, that we don't want people to see, that we don't want people um, to look around. And so, um, David, yeah, I, I just don't see the connection between the two because it's a parable and then it's David, but God did say on your throne, the, the Messiah will set and he will rule and reign on his throne. And he is the son of David. Son of David, have mercy on us. The blind men cried out. What a thing to say. All right, Brianna, thank you very much for your question. Hopefully um, that helps. Go back and read um, Luke 19 again in, um, in the context there. You'll see that it's a parable. And um, of course, we may be given cities or kingdoms or rule with Christ or rule together in the future. It seems to be increased responsibility. What exactly that responsibility is all about? I don't know. I'm not quite sure. All right. So um, thank you for joining us. Thank you for um, giving us your questions. 
Uh, we want to see what the Bible has to say about the things that we're asking. That's our goal. Our goal isn't just to try to figure out what the best response is, but to really consider what the Bible has to say. Write out your question, put the word question in front of it, reread it a couple of times, make sure it makes sense, and then put the references in there so we can look at the references uh, together as well. All right, so um, we have a, another question here from Fact Check These Hands. Fact Check These Hands, good to see you. Good to have you here with us. I understand the purpose of the new earth. I, I, I see, make sure I got this. I understand the purpose of the new earth, but what is the purpose of the new heavens? What do you believe the main difference between the current heaven and the new heaven will be? And again, I, I wish I had more information. Questions like this can be, can be difficult. What I would like to be able to do with a question like this is to spend probably not just a lot of time, but go and look at every reference in the Bible to a new heaven and see what I could learn from that. Off the top of my head, I'm not getting anything. <laughs> my, my brain is empty and um, I, I don't have an answer to it. I just don't know. I don't know. There, there might, if we could look at a passage that might talk about the new heaven, we might be able to glean something from that. But just off the top of my head, I don't know. Um, but let's think for a moment. You got the new heavens, you got the new earth, you got the new Jerusalem. New Jerusalem comes down out of heaven onto the earth. And we're, we have a place. I'm going to take it in New, in New Jerusalem. And who knows what eternity is going to be like. It's a mystery. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor, nor has the heart understood the things that God has planned for those who love him, but the Spirit has begun to reveal those to us. So the Spirit's starting to reveal it to us, but there are still things that we absolutely just do not know. And so I think it's really important for us that we would understand that. And I think exactly what's going to happen there in those heavens, I don't know. Um, I imagine it's going to be exciting, though. I imagine it's going to be a lot of things uh, that we're going to find out about. So thank you, Fact Check These Hands, for your question. I, I appreciate that. We have a question here from Mike. Mike, thank you for joining us. Good to see you. Mike says, um, who are the spirits in prison in 1 Peter? Let's just go ahead and go there. Uh, who, uh, 1 Peter 3.19. 3, and then let's go to 19. Let me get this a little bit better angle for me here. Uh, that's not a good angle. There's all kinds of lights in here and stuff that you get your things going at just an angle. It's, it's bad. All right, so let's get to 19. Um, so 1 Peter 3.19, is that right? 1 Peter 3.19. Mm, I don't think that that's our text. 1 Peter 3.19, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to death. Let me see if I can take a moment to find that passage. All right, so excuse me for just a second. I'm going to bring up um, my notes here. I think I've got something on, um, on the sons of God. Sons of God. Let me see if this is it. Three nineteen, yeah, three nineteen through twenty. So I'm not sure what I looked at. Well, let me just bring you in on my notes here. Yeah, your reference was correct. Um, let me go ahead. I don't know what I was doing. Something funky. All right. So these are my notes, and these are my notes on the Nephilim, the passages in the Bible that talk some about the sons of God and the Nephilim. And so um, it says, this is 1 Peter 3, 19 to 20, by whom also he went and preached to spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. All right, so our question is, who were these guys, right? That is spirits that he went to preach to. So we can deduct from it a little bit just from this passage, 
So it says, by whom also he went and preached to spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine longsuffering waited in the days of Noah. They were formerly disobedient in the days of Noah. Right? Am I reading that right? By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine longsuffering waited in the days of Noah. I think I'm reading that right. While the ark was being prepared in which a few souls, that is eight souls, were saved out of water. So I'm going to take it that these are the sons of God that didn't keep their proper abode. And I, and, and I don't know how you would, I, don't, I, I wish I knew how someone who believes that the sons of Seth intermarried the daughters of Cain. I wish I knew th- who believed that that's the Genesis 6 passage. I wish I knew how they, they, what they believed about it. In fact, I have a couple friends who believe it, so I can ask them. Um, But when I've asked about this passage, they simply tell me that's not what it says. And that's why I read it so carefully, because it looks to me like that's what it says. Um, So let's get into, what do you got uh, these S's that are highlighted here? A little funky. Well, I don't know how to get get rid of that. Go away. (laughs) All right, let me get back up here. Um, to Jude 6, um, 1, 6. This is another one of those passages. And the angels who did not keep their proper dominion but left their own abode. Remember it says that, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful and lived with them, married them. These guys didn't keep their proper abode. That's where you live. He has reserved an everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day. So it seems like demons can get out of line and do things that they're not supposed to do. I don't know what this TV bit is here. How do I get rid of my keyboard. How come I don't know how to get rid of my keyboard? I can't believe that. All right. All right. So let's take a look at this last passage. Um, And that would be, for if God did not spare angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to reserve for judgment. I believe that that word hell in 2 Peter 2, 4 is Tartarus, which is a particular word for hell. Um, but, but all of these together tells us, and, and this is what I think they're talking about. Let me go ahead and get back to your question here. Where was that at? I think it was in this one here. All right, yeah. Um, so the spirits that were in prison are the ones that didn't keep their proper place during the, the, the ark, and the Nephilim were the result of that. Personally, now this is debated, and this is where I stand now, all right? If someone could correct me, if someone would correct my theology and tell me and show me that what I'm believing is wrong, I'd be open to believing what is true, like always, right? But my current understanding, and I think it's strong, is that these were angels that did not keep their proper abode. Did they possess men to have sex with women and, and produce the, the, the Nephilim? Were they messed around genetically? Were they able to have a human body that had sexual organs? Jesus said they don't marry in heaven. So I'm not saying that it doesn't bring up a lot of questions, And it sounds strange, but just because something is strange doesn't necessarily mean that it's not true, right? A lot of strange things that happen in the Bible, but it doesn't mean that they're not true. So my understanding is there were Nephilim on the earth then and afterwards, and that these angels were kept in chains, in in darkness, and Jesus went and preached to those who were there. That's my current understanding on it. I'd like to talk uh, to a couple of my friends, pastors, that believe the other view, which is the the sons of Seth and the daughters of Cain. All right, so thank you, Mike, for your question. Hopefully that answered it. I appreciate you, and I appreciate you joining us. Uh, We have another question here from Annika, and Annika says, question, uh, who replenishes the earth in the millennium, and why must the earth be repopulated if Satan will just uh, deceive people again? And what do you think the earth will be like during the thousand year reign? Thank you, Annika. I really appreciate that. So there's a couple of things here. Um, Why did did God allow the earth to be repopulated when Satan's going to be released again? And what do I think the earth will be like during that thousand year reign? All right, well, let's go ahead and take the thousand-year reign first of all. I think this is the fulfillment of all of the promises to Israel that the Messiah is going to set up on the throne and reign and rule over Israel. And the apostles are going to rule and reign with Jesus in Israel. 
And so God's fulfilling promises. That's what the millennium period is about. That's why you've got to have the millennium period because he's got to fulfill these promises specifically to the nation of Israel. Without it, you're not going to be able to do that. There are also Gentiles who seem to survive the tribulation period. Remember, these are people that survive and God supernaturally protects the Jewish people during the tribulation. The dragon comes after them. Uh, He comes at them with a war. God protects them supernaturally. And in the end, he gathers them together from the four corners of the earth. That's not the rapture. They're gathered together on the earth. The rapture is to meet the Lord in the air. I don't like when people use Matthew 24, 29 through 31 as a second rapture because you're not meeting anybody in the air. There's a gathering, but it's a gathering on earth. The rapture is being caught up in the air to meet the Lord in the air. That's the word rapture means. Um, But I take it that there's some Gentiles who didn't die either during the tribulation period and they populate the earth. And then Satan is released after a thousand years. And it shows that even under the reign of Christ, the heart of man is still sinful and will rebel, even in a perfect environment. I don't know all of the things that God is doing, but I do believe that that is one of the things that will be revealed to us particularly, that people are still rebellious. Even when they're living in that perfect environment of Jesus reigning and ruling forever. Okay, Annika, and um, what do you think the earth will be like during that thousand years? Um, I don't think there's gonna be any ocean. I think uh, it's gonna be restored to the beauty that it once had. If you think nature is beautiful today, I find myself at times going out when I'm outside, just thinking about how beautiful it is. Looking at the sky, the mountains, right now in Tucson, the Palo Verde trees that are yellow, just looking at how beautiful it is. Just think about how beautiful it will be when things are restored to what God had intended in the very beginning. I think it will be absolutely amazing, Annika. So hopefully that is helpful. Thank you very much for your question. I appreciate that. Let's see um, if we've got another question here. Um, Appreciate you guys. So, yeah, Kimberly put up the seven things that God hates. Good. Um, We can look at those if someone has a question about them. I'd love to take a look at them. I think that that's important for us to stay as far away from those things as we possibly can. So, we have another question from JG. JG, good to see you. Haven't had a question from you in a little while. Good to have you here. I hope you're uh, hope things are doing well. If you're you're new here, joining us for the very first time, really glad you're here. We do this every most Wednesdays and Saturdays. Sometimes we miss most Wednesdays and Saturdays, and we take a look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what the Bible has to say about the things that we're asking. I'm not saying that I know all the answers. I've been a pastor for 40 years, but I'm not saying that I have all the answers. Uh, in fact, in that 40 years, I've changed my mind because the Bible has convinced me that certain things are different. Than, than what I thought they were. So we want to know what the Bible says and we want to point ourselves to the scriptures. So um, JG says, do Christians suffer from spiritual demonic attacks more in countries where there is less physical persecution like Muslim countries? Do Christians suffer more or suffer, su- do Christians suffer from demonic attacks more in countries where there is less physical protection like in Muslim countries? Um, I'm going to say, I'm not sure, JG, what your, your question is here. Do Christians suffer from spiritual demonic attacks? What is a spiritual demonic attack look like? Has Satan ever, have I ever had a spiritual demonic attack? Has it, does anybody I know ever had a spiritual demonic attack? As a Christian, the Bible says the enemy can't touch you. You've given authority over um, the gates of hell will not prevail against you. Behold, I give you power to trample on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy. Um, but it says give no place to the devil. We're to put on our armor and we're to stand. And I think that if we're doing all of those things, then I'm not going to have a spiritual demonic attack. So it's hard for me to answer the more question here. more in countries where is less physical persecution. 
uh, like in Muslim countries. Um, I'm going to rephrase your question a little bit. Maybe I can answer that. Maybe that will help. Um, do Christians suffer spiritual attacks more in countries where there is less physical persecution like in Muslim countries? Is there less physical persecution in Muslim countries? Um, I'm just not sure that you're asking. I'm not sure if you, that you're using the word. You th- the word means what you think it means. I'm not sure the question is really coming across, JG, as you're asking it. Maybe I'm. Maybe I'm just being the silly one here. Maybe everybody's screaming at me right now um, as to what exactly the question is. Um, I'm. I'm just going to pass on the question because I don't understand it. Um, I don't know what a spiritual demonic attack would be. I don't know why it would be, why it would be, in, why would you would be less physical persecution in Muslim countries. It might be more physical persecution in Muslim countries as I think about it. So JG, if you want to try to clarify that and um, resubmit it, I'm sorry that I wasn't able to answer it. Uh, just sometimes if I can't make sense of it, like I said, it may have been really clear. Uh, it might've just been me. Trust me. It's me and not you. All right? Um, So Paul has another question for us. And Paul says, Why must all humans suffer the consequences of Adam and Eve's decision to eat from the tree of knowledge? If we are each judged independently for our decisions, why then does every human after him suffer uh, the fall from their decision? So um, it's Adam, right? The Bible says that that Eve gave the the fruit of the tree to Adam. Adam ate it, and sin entered into the world. So I say, when we get to heaven, let's mob him. Let's just be like, "There's Adam. Let's get him." He caused a lot of difficulties and a lot of problems. I've heard it said that if we were there, we would have done the same thing. That we would have fallen into the same sin that Adam fell into. Um, I don't know. What I do know is that this is what happened. And you and I are living in a fallen world and we've got the results of Adam falling. But why should we suffer the consequences of all of them? Because God gave them dominion. Remember, he created Adam and Eve in the image of God, male and female. He created them and then gave them dominion over the earth. So they they were in a position to rule and reign. And then when these who had been given dominion made a mistake or sinned deliberately, men didn't make a mistake, but sinned deliberately, then we fell with them because they represented us as ruling and reigning. And I think that that's the answer to that. It wasn't like they were just there put in there, go live your own little lives and, and, and be happy and multiply the earth. No, they were told to rule and reign over the earth. Then they blew it. And the world fell with them. The ground gave up thorns and thistles. The ground is under a curse. Man is under a curse. Woman is under a curse. Jesus came to set us free from that curse. The second Adam came to set us free from that curse that came from Adam and Eve eating that fruit. So yeah, they took all of humanity with them in their desire to know uh, what was right and what was wrong. And I think that's really important for us to understand. Um, The second part, if we each are judged in ability for our decisions, then why does every human after them suffer uh, the fall from their decision? Um, Let's just say that there is a politician. Poly, um, what what does politic mean, by the way? Poly meaning many. Tick meaning bloodsucker. Many bloodsuckers. Sorry. Um, a politician is perfect for this. Um, and he's making a lot of money as a politician. He's making money from his position and he's making money from lobbies that are doing him favors. He's making money. His family is, is living high on the hog because of that. But then he gets caught. Somebody figures out what he's doing, that what he's doing is wrong. And so the, um, they fire him. And when he's fired, now his children don't live high on the hog anymore because of what he did. Doesn't mean they sinned. 
It simply means that he sinned and it affected them. Adam and Eve sinned and because they were the first man and woman, it affected us all because they were, given the, they were giving reign over the heavens and the earth. Or, oh, excuse me, not the heavens. They were given dominion over the earth to, to reign on the earth, which also helps us to understand that God wants us to rule and reign with him and that we're gonna do that in the future. That's why the Bible talks about us ruling and reigning with him because God didn't wanna rule and reign alone. He created us that we might be able to rule and reign with him, which is an absolutely amazing thought when you think about it. All right, so thank you very much uh, for that question. Um, I do think that that's the answer to that, Paul. Hopefully uh, that is helpful, all right? So let's see. Uh, we have a follow-up question by Jari. What time is it? It's 5.01. Let's go ahead and bring it in here. I got to be taken off. We've got a service in an hour. I'll tell you about that in just a moment, but let's take this follow-up from Jari. Um, if you have any questions from the service tonight, it's an hour away. We're going to be talking about Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, predicting its destruction. So we're going to talk about the predictions of Jesus and then he told them, you didn't know this day of your visitation. Why should they have known the day of their visitation? We're going to talk about that as well in our study tonight. You can join us at 6 o'clock online, uh, 7.15 on the southwest side of town at our, our second campus. Both of them are live. I'll be there teaching at, well, no, tonight, Saturday night, right? Um, I'll actually only have one Saturday night service, and then tomorrow morning we'll have both campuses. All right, same topic, same, same sermon for all of them, all right? So if you have a question from the best message this weekend, then write it down and then ask it in the up and coming um, Q&A, which will be Wednesday night, all right? So this is a um, question, Jari says, follow-up reference. My men's group leader was referring to how suffering and reigning go hand in hand, 2 Timothy 2, 12. All right, well, let's look at that. Let me take a look at it here. Hopefully, I'll do better than I did with the first Peter reference. 2 Timothy 2, 12. All right, so this is helpful. And people who don't use their gifts or suffer that much won't be reigning along with them. Thank you, Jari. I appreciate that. Like I said, if we can get the reference, then we can get some help. So let's just take a look. Um, so here it says... Let me just go back a little bit here. Sorry to do that to you. I'm just trying to find a heading here. All right, so there, I don't see one. Um, all right, so let's just go back at least one verse. I want to read it in the context. Um, this is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Okay, so I see where he's getting this from, all right? So he's talking about our rewards if we're faithful. And so he says, this is a faithful saying, for if we die with him, we shall also live with him. So we die to ourselves. The Bible says in Galatians chapter two, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. And he died for us. And if we die, we shall live with him as well. And if we endure... We shall reign with him. Now, my question would be, Jari, what does endure mean? The Bible says, if you endure to the end, you will be saved. And it's a sign of your salvation that you endure to the end. So, how does he get suffering from enduring? You endure whether you suffer or don't suffer. Enduring would include suffering, but it would also include, include good times. You might say, well, why would I have to endure during good times? Because sometimes during good times, people walk away. Those who endure to the end will be saved, the Bible says. Then we shall reign with them. So I think this is saying, hey, we make it up into heaven. We endure to the end. Um, we're going to be with him. If we deny him, he will also, um, he also will deny us. That's a scary thought. So don't deny Jesus. Um, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. So he's not going to be faithless to us. He's going to keep his word. He's going to keep his promises, which is what that passage means. All right. So 
I'm not sure that the application is really good. I can kind of see his thinking as he's teaching this. If we endure, then there's got to be some suffering for our endurance. So if we suffer with him, we're going to reign with him. If we don't suffer and endure, we're not going to reign with them. I, 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 I don't like being really critical over other teachers and what they say, but I look at this and think, yeah, it's, I don't know that I would have made that connection. I, I think I might have tried to find something else to talk about our rewards for suffering. And I think that there are I mean, the Bible talks about the crown of glory for those who do the work of the gospel. There's a martyr's crown for those who give their lives for Christ. Um, but I don't know that we can say that that enduring here is necessarily suffering. I don't know that, that I think that's a little bit of a leap. I can kind of see the connection, all right? I wouldn't be nitpicky, by the way. I wouldn't say to him, boy, you got that wrong. I would just say, I don't see it that way, all right? Just so you know, all right? It's always... Um, hey, we're judged the way we judge. I don't know if I want people to nitpick my sermons. <laughs> so I don't want to nitpick other people's sermons as well. All right. So, um, hey, I really appreciate you guys. It's been a pleasure being able to spend this time with you. I hope that you guys are blessed by the time that we are spending here today and that you walk close with Jesus. Um, join us in our study. It's on in, in a little less than an hour. I got to get out of here so we can get going. All right. Love you guys. I'm uh, going to go ahead and sign out. We will see you later on.